and welcome to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast. My name is Scott, and I'm going to be your moderator today because Max is in Florida. With me today are... Oh, we already hit the wall of lack of preparation. Um, youth co-director Daniel Wright. Woo! And associate pastor Bill Muffin Calvin. Yes! Pass the muffins. <laughs> All right. And that's it. There's no there's no fourth person today. Uh, and I don't know who's up for for uh for prayer. Also, these waveforms look really aggressive, but hopefully they're not blowing out the microphones. <laughs> I actually turned down the levels a little bit from where they were, so it can't possibly be my fault. Uh so Daniel, will you open us up with a word of prayer today? Yeah. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for just the space. I just pray that um, everything that's said on this podcast would just continue to glorify and honor your name. Lord, I pray that you'd be with be with us as we're talking to him in this, this discussion and that you'd be with our listeners as they're listening to this, that this would bless their day and that they'd be able to lean closer to you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I've got a rough idea for the Would You Rathers, but the listeners should know, and, and Max should know as he edits this, that, that I am woefully ill-prepared um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm me and I'm Max all in one day. So let's see if this is a good, this is a good one. Okay, so what we're going to do today is very similar to, to Would You Rather Toastmasters, but with a slight, a slight change of pace, which is it's Would You Rather Battle to the Death Daniel Wright versus Bill Calvin. I will be the judge, and you two will be fighting it out exclusively, uh, since there's only two of you. <laughs> and I will decide which of you makes the most compelling argument. So I don't think we've used this card before. We're just going to go through each of these four questions, and uh, we'll see who gets more points by the end of it. Um, I will alternate which of you gets the first option and which of you gets the second option so daniel you'll get the first option first for no reason at all which is uh you're arguing for always having to keep one eye closed and bill you're arguing for always only breathing out of your nose okay mm. so i'm deciding between always keeping one eye closed or only breathing out of my nose and i think that bill has the harder one so i'm gonna go with daniel you go first <laughs> well so at the beginning, just this idea always having to keep one eye closed. That means you're always, you're still always seeing. There's not going to be a moment where you're not seeing anything. So, you know, the phrase like keep one eye open. Well, now it's keep one eye closed. Um, so it fits right in. People won't necessarily question anything and doesn't really interfere much with your life at all. Mm. Keeping just one eye closed. What about the death perception, though? Yeah, that would kill me in tennis, because <laughs> that would happen sometimes in tennis, where I'd lose a contact lens and be out there playing one eye. Mm -hmm. You can't play one-eyed tennis. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, but, or one-eyed oh. baseball batting. I mean, it's it's tough. It's too late. You made your case. All right, Bill, you're up. <laughs> Well, breathing through your nose, that's the way we're supposed to breathe anyway. Even runners are supposed to be breathing through our noses and not just inhaling through our mouths. And there's beauty to that because when you inhale through your mouth the whole race, uh, you get a sore throat. Mm -hmm. So you really do want to breathe through your nose. And besides, who wants to be around people that are <laughs> breathing through their mouths because you kind of come off like an animal. So it's a good practice. Let's breathe through our nose. All right. You would lose the satisfying feeling of yawning, though. An interesting counterpoint. Well, I think, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do my very best to be the the impartial judge here. I'm gonna go with Bill's argument. I think it was a good argument. But if I were answering this question myself, I would choose Daniel's answer because I fairly regularly deal with congestion, and I would probably die <laughs> if I could only breathe through my nose. Mm, oh yeah. But uh, I think Bill, you made a really good point. Uh, okay, uh, Bill, you're arguing for having someone on a bus stand up unexpectedly and move away from you. And Daniel, you're arguing for having someone in the car next to yours at a red light look at you and then lock the door. Okay. So in both of these instances, someone is is visibly 
disapproving of something about you, either mm. by standing up on a bus and moving away from you or by locking their door next to you at a red light. Mm. And Bill, you're arguing for why it's better for someone to stand up and move away from you. And Daniel, you're arguing for why it's better for someone to lock their door at a red light. Door. Make sense? Mm. Yep. All right, Bill, we'll have you go first this time around. Well, this is my life practice, actually. <laughs> to, you just get a silent killer fart and they get up and move away and that gives you more room on the bus mm. so praise god <laughs> so your argument is this is already happening anyway if you're doing yeah. your, if you're, you're living doing, your life you're right right <laughs> so it's no real added strain all right daniel so <clears throat> i would say that the whole like blocking a car at a red light thing is like not really a big deal. Nobody's going to notice that somebody... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Daniel kept his composure really well for a long time. I'm silently cracking up a bill. I'm sorry, Daniel. That was unprofessional of me. Please continue. <laughs> okay. I will continue. I'll just look straight. So somebody is locking their car at a red light. Nobody's going to notice that. You know, you're just, you're just there at a red light. They lock... They lock their car door. I mean, they got a problem with you, but that's their problem. Now, see, when you're on a bus and people walk away, everybody else on that bus sees that somebody is walking mm. away. Nobody else knows that somebody locked the car, mm. even if it's literally the car right behind the car that locked your doors. And why do we care what people know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's I'm not a good living point. for them. I'm living <laughs> for true. God. For multiple oh. reasons, everyone knows what's going on on that bus. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's why buses have windows. Well, Bill certainly gets style points. <laughs> but I think I'm going to give that one to Daniel for an even one-to-one. -one. <sighs> All right. And we'll do this one then as a tiebreaker. Uh, which one of these is more interesting? I apologize in advance to anyone to whom this is offensive. Um, the answers that are given, that is. Uh, okay. So, Daniel, you're arguing for living in a world where you need a quarter to get into every bathroom. Mm. including the one in your home. Wow. And Bill, you're arguing for living in a world where every bathroom only has one square of toilet paper. Ooh. Oh, man. <laughs> mm. yeah. uh, Daniel, you get to go first this time. So, I mean, quarters. Quarters do, I mean, it is money, and it is something that could be a hindrance, you know, you're going around, you couldn't find a quarter. But the thing is, that quarter is paying for toilet paper. That toilet, that quarter is paying for upkeep <clears throat> of the bathroom. So you can rely on having a nice, clean experience every time you go into the bathroom with multiple layers of toilet paper to use. Now, I understand you're asking, but how about your own bathroom? Well, now every house, every every place has their own toilet cleaner like somebody who is it's their job too so you're also furthering the economy by bringing this quarter into the toilet into the bathroom every time you, you use it so you're doing a service for the whole world and i think that's what we're called to do wow. serve the world wow be oh, be really light and salt moving all right bill what's your counterpoint well, I'm arguing for this one square of toilet paper, <clears throat> which means that we've got to just carry our own toilet paper. And you might think, what? This is really counterintuitive. The Japanese have no trash baskets on the streets, and yet the streets are pristine. We have trash baskets everywhere, and we've got trash all over the streets. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it when I was in Japan. How is it these streets are so clean? It's because everybody knows you have to take care of your own trash. So you put it in your pocket, for instance, and, and that keeps the streets clean. I think that one square of toilet paper is going to keep <laughs> our butts clean. <laughs> okay. Well, I think, I think I've got to give it to Bill purely because he was in rare form today. And he deserves, he deserves a win. Well done, gentlemen. Well done. Max, I bet you wish you were here for that one. All right. Um, 
Bill. Yeah, I wish I could see his face when he listens to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to edit. He's got to edit. Uh, he's just going to leave it all in. Yeah. He stopped editing things out a long time ago, I think. <laughs> Bill, give me a number between one and 500 and a half. <laughs> all right. Mm, 500 and a quarter. I, I, I <laughs> I'm going to round down to 500. Daniel, right. give me a number between one and 501. 501. All right, we're going to number 1,001 of 1,001 things you always wanted to know about the Bible, but never thought to ask. By who, Daniel? This guy who wrote this book that I can't remember his name. F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's the least ceremonious (laughs) introduction he's ever had. I hope we haven't already read the last one. Seems like we could have. Oh, there's interesting. Okay, so this is... uh, I've never looked inside this book before, so I'm just I'm just fascinated by the the formatting. Okay, so this is from the last section, naturally being the last item in the book, called "Odds and Ends, comma Mostly Fascinating," which in itself is broken up into uh, little mini sections. And the last section has three items, and it's called measurements. And uh, number one thousand and one in one thousand and one things you always wanted to know about the Bible but never thought to ask by F. Scott Fitzgerald is the measurement of an hour. A day divided into twenty-four hours of sixty minutes was not known in the Old Testament times. The New Testament has the Greek word "ora" or maybe "hora." Do you pronounce the H at the beginning, Daniel? Depends on if it's got this little curl at the top of the O. In which way it's pointing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, the New Testament has the Greek word aura many times, and each day had 12 of these, not 24. Mark 15, verse 25, says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, probably about six in the morning. The sixth hour was noon. However, the Romans used a different system from the Greeks and divided the day into 24 hours, numbering them as we do from midnight to noon. John's gospel uses the Roman system of time, so when it mentions the 10th hour being during daylight, it is referring to 10 a.m. I didn't really know that. I knew the the last thing about the differences and and the way they kept time, but I didn't didn't know the, the, the first part about... The day divided into 24 hours of 60 minutes was not known in Old Testament times. Uh, I have two directions that we could go with this. The the one that's maybe a little bit tamer is um, that that kind of thing, that the sixth hour versus the ninth hour or whatever, is often one of the ways that people kind of try and poke holes in, in mm-hmm. the validity of the Scriptures. Like, oh, well, this says one thing and this says another. Yeah. But this clearly, you know, has a good explanation for that particular quote-unquote contradiction. Um, how does having more information of this nature help you guys when it comes to parsing through those those quote-unquote contradictions in the Bible that some people like to point to and and... You know, say that, oh, it's it's not reliable because it says these different things. Mm-hmm. Well, I've noticed in my life that the contradictions almost always have a good explanation. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, when I say almost always, I mean like 99.44% of the time. It just, and it gets you deeper into the scriptures. It's like, whoa, that makes this verse even more powerful. It's It's really... I think the plan of God is to put things in there purposely by way of his Holy Spirit that would cause you to have to think about mm-hmm. what, is this, what is this saying? Why is this saying differently than the other book? I, I think it's, his, it's by design. Hmm. Yeah, I, like, I think it goes to show that there's an importance of like, not just taking, like, actually like, studying the scriptures and understanding what's being said, rather than just, like, taking everything, like, at face value and just kind of, like, taking it out of context, out of, like, its place as well. I think knowing the culture that the scriptures are, like, rooted in is really helpful and, like, having insights like that. Whereas, like, somebody from the outside, like, looking in could look at something like that and be, like, here, obvious contradiction. The Bible is false. And then, like, it shows... Then if you if you know, like, oh, this whole hour thing is different, and then you're able to explain that, then it's like, wow, this person, like, actually knows what's like going on, and there's something, like, deeper. It's reading something that's not necessarily people 
read every day. I mean, it's ancient literature that applies to our lives today, which is something in itself is like crazy and so cool. Mm. Um, oh, uh, have you ever um, run into a contradiction or, or a seeming contradiction or however you want to phrase it in the Bible that you couldn't really rectify or explain? And if so, what was it if you remember it? And, and how do you deal with that kind of thing? Well, I'm thinking of one that bothered me for a while, and it has a very simple solution. I just didn't see the solution. A friend of mine is a terrific author. His name is Stephen Miller. He writes Bible reference books for the unsaved. That's who his target audience is. But what happens is, is the Christians buy his Bible reference books. The Complete Guide to the Bible is one of them. Who's who and where's where in the Bible. And these these will sell a lot of copies. Like that complete guide to the Bible, I think, has sold 800,000 copies. And <clears throat> so he's really got an audience. So he had one on the complete guide to Bible prophecy, and he pointed out that in Isaiah, I get this mixed up, it's either 15.1 or 18.1. I think it's 15.1. That it speaks of Damascus being destroyed, and uh, he says, now this is one of four prophecies that has never been fulfilled. The city of Damascus has not been destroyed. That bothered me. I thought, wow, what is this about? So there's two answers. The first is, history isn't done yet. And the city of Damascus is a powder keg. If we woke up tomorrow and said Damascus is leveled, none of us would be surprised because they're fighting like crazy mm -hmm. there. So that that was the first thing that finally came to mind. And I, I don't know why it took me so long to realize that, but that came to mind eventually, and I realized, hey, that's a good solution to this. But then I read uh, John Walvoord, who's a real expert in prophecy. I mean, one of the top experts of the whole 20th century. And he said, no, Damascus has been destroyed on two different occasions. So if I'm going to weigh, you know, the scholarship here, I'm going with Walbert because he really, really devoted a long, mm. long life to the subject of prophecy. And wherever Steve Miller, my friend, was getting his information from, it's, it's not going to stack up and be weighed with the same scale that Walbert. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the contradictions that like have I have the most question on are um, the ones like kind of kind of in the law. Like there's one there's one law that pretty much says like don't boil something mm. like one type of food, and then later on in like Deuteronomy it says to boil the food. So it's like, hmm. how and why, like, where did the change happen? And that's, like, something I haven't really taken any time to, like, dive deep into because it's, like, it's just this law about food. And, like, it's not particularly interesting to me of, like, really parsing that out and figuring out why these people couldn't boil something or did boil something. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, because there's... I know they're like seemingly contradictory and there's like reasons behind the law. And most of it is to either point out that God's people are set apart from the rest of the nations or even like protecting, protecting his people from like different foods that are like dangerous to, mm. to eat or that could bring about some sickness. So I'm, my guess is like there's something in that, those two categories, which would show why those those two particular laws are different, but mm. like just general. How would you respond? This might seem like kind of a ludicrous argument to make, but you know, sometimes people do make these kinds of arguments. If someone were to look at you and, mm -hmm. and say, you know, there's this contradiction about boiling and not boiling, and that just, you know, calls into question the whole validity of the Bible. Like, how would you respond to that person? I think I would <clears throat> I would point them to like trying to get a larger picture of the thing of the Bible. Like not trying to like create like a big deal out of like this one small instance 
in the Bible and showing that like this this book is like from from Genesis to Revelation is it's unified and there's like there's reasonings for what's going on and it's moving forward and I would I would invite them to like I'm not sure like let's let's dive into this let's look at this together and see what other people have said and what they have thought um because I think that does a couple I guess you need more time like to really do that and if somebody's just there in the moment just trying to have an argument then like nothing that I particularly say will be helpful they'll just they're kind of already they found something to just try to make their point um but I would invite them into a further conversation I think of like I'm not sure let's you want to come alongside of me and like try to figure this out and look what other people have said and like why this difference is here because the Bible says that it's it's like the word of God. It's God breathed. So I believe like all of it is God breathed. So there's there's gotta be a reason why it's changed. Do you would you be interested in like trying to figure that out with me? Hmm. I think that's kind of the approach I would go with, especially with a teenager who like I know and like it's just coming up to me with this like this question because then I'm able to teach them Bible study skills as well in that process in this one particular example. Nice. That's a great response. Well, next up is sermon roundup. Dan is not here. So can I get a yeehaw from a willing yeehaw! Thank you, Bill. <laughs> this past week's sermon was delivered by myself and Daniel Wright on the topic of trusting God as we look at the story of Abraham uh, being asked to sacrifice Isaac, and Daniel and I preached, and Bill was out of town. So that ends Sermon Roundup, <laughs> which brings us to Topic of the Week. Topic of the Week this week was brought to you by Family Sunday or, or Family Weekend, since we have our Saturday night services, too. This is a new thing. This is something that we will be doing every fifth uh, every fifth weekend, or maybe it's specifically every fifth Sunday, because sometimes the Saturdays and Sundays get a little wonky. So I think it's every fifth Sunday we'll be having a Family Weekend, and and the big idea here is to really, I see it in two kind of a, a two sides of the same coin of family. On the one hand, we're highlighting the families within our church, and we're providing sort of a kid-friendly service. And at the ten thirty service tomorrow, the kids are going to be up in the sanctuary with us, and there's there's involvement from from I think pretty young kids, and then also the pack, which are the fifth and sixth graders, and and then um, one of our high schoolers, and. And um, so all sorts of cool stuff. We're singing some more kid-friendly songs, whatever that means in the context of church. <laughs> I think most of our songs are pretty kid-friendly, but more a little bit more fun, day campy type songs. Um, and uh, so that that's the one side we're highlighting the families. And I think also another side of it is we're highlighting the fact that we are a family as the church. Mm. And uh, so we're all going to be together with the kids. We're going to have fun. There's going to be s'mores under the portico uh, between the services. So that's from 10 to 1030. Uh, because it is uh, the weekend of Halloween, which is when people often dress up, we're inviting people to wear costumes, which is just a fun way to add to the to the kind of zany fun of family weekend. It's not really having anything to do with the the scary whatever stuff of Halloween. In fact, please don't wear a, a scary costume of any kind, but just a way to add another layer of fun. And so that's really uh, all it's about. It's about being together, being a family, bringing those kids in and having a good time as we learn about God and grow together. Uh, so that is this coming weekend. I have no clue if this podcast is going to be out before that happens, but if it's out after that happens, know that it happened on October 30th and 31st, and it was a wonderful time, and we'll see it again sometime in the new year. <laughs> All right, so topic of the week this week is um, one that uh, I am particularly interested in, and it has to do with, it kind of has to do with the, this the season of life that we're all in right now uh, with COVID and the pandemic. But but really, it's, it's nothing new for Christians to, to think about and talk about, I don't think. Um, and that is this issue of the mark of the beast. Uh, now, um, let's see, Bill, since Daniel's done a decent amount of talking recently, I'll ask you, Bill, would you mind describing what the mark of the beast is for anyone that just has no clue where is it in the Bible? You know, that sort of thing. Just kind of some basic groundwork. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the mark of the beast as being the number 666. And those who bear it have it on either their right hand or their forehead. 
the thrust of it is you need this mark of the beast in order to buy, sell, trade, in order to be part of the economy. And as a child growing up in the church, I thought nobody's going to want 666 stamped on her forehead. Or There was a book called 666 that was a popular seller, and it showed somebody being branded with that number on their hand. And I thought, nobody's going to do this. But now that we're a lot more technological than we were in the 1950s and 60s, we can see, oh, wait a minute, this is attractive. It would be a simple silicone chip, and you could have all of your information on that chip. You don't need to carry any credit cards, any cash. You just show your hand and go through the register this, I find this extremely attractive. I mean, now you don't have robberies taking place, people holding somebody up at gunpoint for their money because mm -hmm. there's no money to be had. So I, I can see why this will really catch on in a big, big way. Um, of course, being a Christian, I don't want a silicone chip under my hand if indeed that's the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. And that, that's it in a few words. Yeah. So here's an interesting question. I, I recently read through the, the Matthew Henry commentary on Revelation, and his perspective is very interesting. This is a perspective that's a couple of centuries old because he was in the mm -hmm. 1600s or something like that. But much of his interpretation of Revelation is that it's already happened. Um, which is one one way that that people look at it, sort of the mm. historical uh, interpretation of Revelation that these things, you know, already have most of them have already come about. Obviously, the the new heavens, the new earth, haven't yet. But mm -hmm. so he he looked at the mark of the beast as uh, an instance of, I think it was, in, candidly, he he equated a lot of Revelation with the rise of the papacy and the Catholic Church's power and. And a lot of that stuff, and I don't know if that's right or, or wrong, but that's just what he what he thought. And so there was something there that that I guess the Catholic Church had or, you know, ordained that you can only buy or sell if you do. This. So that, that he thought the mark of the beast has already happened. Um, but it sounds like Bill, you would disagree with that. You think it's it's yet to come? Oh yes, I do. It, it, that position has a name. It's called the preterist position. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of people that hold to it anymore, but. There, there's there's a few people out there. Was it more popular in the past? I think it was. Okay. What do you think changed that caused people to, to move away from that? I think just the brute facts of many of these things in the book of Revelation have never happened. That causes people like me to say, yes, they've never happened. So this is a book about the future and... Mm -hmm. Let's keep our eyes open. Sure. Um, so, when it comes to the mark of the beast, this is you know it, it's I got here Revelation thirteen open in front of me, uh, which says uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure the mark of the beast comes up again later, um, but it says it uh, referring to the beast also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So that's a, a kind of a weird, I mean, Revelation general is kind of weird, but that's kind of a weird thing. You know, Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Any thoughts on what that means, either of you? The number of the beast is a number of, of of a man? I used to remember the formula for it. I need to look it up again. But I remember Ronald Reagan qualified as 666. Okay. I forget what his middle name was right now, mm. but they used all three of his names, and he was 666. Well, I think they did the same thing with Hitler and Mussolini and just everybody down through history somehow ties into 666. Mm -hmm. So that makes me extra cautious because there's always a finger pointer and it seems like they can take any name and turn it into 666. Sure. 
Why does the the author of Revelation say, let the person who has insight calculate the number and then say, the number is 666? <laughs> Why? It seems kind of like a strange thing to say. Like, let the person who has insight figure it out, but but it's this. Oh, any thoughts on what he means by like why he says like that the person of insight calculate this and then gives us the number is, is do you think it is bill like what you were just saying where we know what the number is and we need to figure out how it applies to to something out there you know a person or a situation or whatever is that what he's saying or does it mean something else <laughs> <laughs> do you have kind, any kind any of blanking thoughts? out there that's okay i it's a yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, really, you take a long name like Riemann Schneider and you think, okay, can you squeeze that into 666? <laughs> so the finger pointers can. They, I'm sure they yeah. could squeeze that guy who's the president of China. He's only got like a two syllable, I mean, a two letter last name. They could probably make that 666. So mm -hmm. you're going to need more than just that to go on. So the the mark of the beast comes up again later in in the scriptures uh, in Revelation specifically, um, Revelation fourteen uh, nine to eleven says if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And Revelation uh, 20, verse 4 says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And back in Revelation 13, if my Bible app will load again, right before it says it forced everyone to get the mark, it says, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And so pretty much every time this mark is referenced, it's referenced right after this idea of worshiping uh, mm -hmm. the the image of the beast. Um, do you find, like, but it doesn't always say, you know, or in fact, I don't know if it ever says they received the mark because they worshipped, but it's, they're always hand in hand. Hmm. Do you think that they are intrinsically connected? The people who worship the beast receive the mark? Or do you think that they're just two different things that are kind of happening simultaneously? It's probably not a case where it's simply worshipping an idol out of metal, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's going to be, even in the Old Testament, those people that were doing that, those idols had demonic power. Yeah. It wasn't they were worshiping a piece of wood. They, they were worshiping the demonic god mm -hmm. that somehow was associated with that wood. <clears throat> Modern-day man would do the same thing. If, if your whole livelihood depends on something and then there's some demonic power associated with it, you look at people even now. You see crystals in lots of rearview mirrors, and mm -hmm. you think, "Okay, you haven't gotten past that yet." <clears throat> yeah. But but it's because they they really believe there's there's some kind of power there. Maybe maybe it's helping their arthritis. Who knows? So when you got the whole world in this economy, and you don't want to speak out against it or you will be persecuted severely, perhaps to the point of death. Hmm. It's pretty easy to see people jumping on to say having crystals in their rearview mirror. Yeah, I definitely think it is tied to worship as well. Um, and I was, it had to be like sometime last year, the Bible Project's, does a, a series. They did a series where it's like how to read the Bible. So they like went through all the different types of literature, all the different groupings of books in the Bible. And the last one came around 2020. And so they were, they were going through how to read apocalyptic literature, how to read the book of Revelation during like, it was almost like crazy timing. It was like, March or April, 
hmm. of 2020 and it just kind of landed on their schedule of yeah. like how they were doing it so it wasn't like oh this is a hot topic this <laughs> was what was up next um and they pointed something that is why I, all this context is why i think it's connected to worship is because of they're pointing back to De- deuteronomy 6 in this um in context of in conversation with the mark on the hand and the forehead Mm. um, where um, it's right after the Shema, which is the hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. And then later on, it talks about raising up, raising up children. And then in verse eight, it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And like this this idea of worshiping God, this like command to worship God, there was also this this idea of having stuff on your hand, having something in between your eyes, on your on your head. And so they kind of made that connection in Deuteronomy, this like key teaching of what it looks like, what it means to worship and follow God in the Old Testament, and connected it to the only other time where you see like worship connected to a, something on your hand, something on your forehead. Mm. And that connection between like, I think really just showed me how much it is kind of tied to that worship as well. Um, it was really like interesting to me. I've never made that connection before hearing that. And like the last thing I would have thought of like reading revelation, go back to Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought that was, an interesting, entering interesting connection. I'm wondering, like, how deep that connection is, um, as well. And is it a one for one of like, there's this, this version of doing it of worshiping God, and then there's this version of doing it of like worshiping the the Antichrist or the evil the evil beast. Mm. Yeah. So. So. Again, looking at Revelation 14, 9 to 11, it says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire. The smoke of their torment goes pretty dark stuff. Describing hell. I already read all of it, so I won't read it all again. Is that then saying that whoever has this mark is going to hell? Sure looks like it. Once you have that mark, you're doomed. But nobody just has that mark without them knowing they have willfully chosen it. It's not like, mm-hmm. I was sleeping on the couch and boy, I woke up and I had this mark. It's not going to be like that. Mm. It's going to be a willful choice. It might not be a real well thought out choice, but it's still a willful choice. Mm-hmm. One thing I find fascinating about this whole economy idea that you can't buy or sell is the Jews have their own economy right now. If you're a graduate and you have your accounting degree and a CPA and you're going to start your own accounting business, if you're Jewish, generally Jewish mothers will get on the phone and say, Michael's starting his accounting business. Let's drum up business for him. You have a small business. Why don't you use Michael as your accountant? Because your accountant's retiring. So they they just network beautifully. Mm-hmm. And so if you're an accountant or a dentist or a lawyer, no matter what business you are, if you're Jewish, you've got a community that's that's desirous of supporting you. So you can even fail as a Jewish businessman, and they will say, we'll get behind you again. Hmm. I think, wow, how loving. I mean, th- this is really impressive to me that mm-hmm. they they have something that's organic and it's working real well. But I think to myself, okay, let's pretend we're in the tribulation and 666 is a big deal. Some Jews are going to have that 666 on them, and others are going to say, whoa. No, we're not doing that. These are the same kinds of mindsets that ended up in the Holocaust of World War II. We, we are not participating. And they don't need to. They've got their own economy. They, 
will figure out how to keep each other going financially. Probably not at the same level they're at now, but they will be able to make it through a famine of a, an economy. And I think to myself, okay, will the born-again Christians be the ones who latch on to the Jews tightly at that point, and, and they work together? Will that happen? That's in the back of my mind. Sure. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I want to come back to something that you said, Bill, this idea that you won't just wake up and, and find the, the mark of the beast is on you. It's going to be a, a pretty willful choice. What choice will is that? Like, what choice are you making that's going to end up with you? I mean, I, we not, might not know concretely, but like, like, what kind of choice are you making there? It, I'm really afraid to say this because I'm, I think it'll get misconstrued. But we're seeing it a little bit right now with vaccinations. Okay. People are being told, you must be vaccinated or you cannot work here. Sure. So, okay, if they can do that at the business level, which, let's face it, that's what 666 is, and bring a lot of pressure to bear on people, do you want to keep your job or are we going to have to let you go? It could be just simply the business world of of the world, not not just America, the whole world saying, you've got to have this or you can't work here. Hmm. So we talked earlier about the connection between the mark of the beast and, and the worship of the beast. Do you think it would be possible for someone, do you think it would be possible to to misinterpret what's going on? Do you think when we get to that point and they say, you need this or you can't work here, because just hearing that, it's like, well, depending on what it is, you know, I, I might be, I might be, you know, like, for example, you know, you need a driver's license or you can't work for our, our shipping company. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, that's probably not the mark of the beast. Um, it doesn't seem like it would be. Do you think it'll be, you know, could it be as innocuous as that or will it be pretty obvious, do you think? I still think it's going to be more obvious. I, that's why I really was hesitant to use the vaccination as my illustration. But two years from now, none of us would have thought, oh, this is going to be a real controversy. I sure didn't think that. I thought, man, I they find a vaccination, sign me up, I want it. Mm. But I'm healthy. If I had an autoimmune disease, I might be saying, well, wait a minute, I don't really want this. I'm afraid sure. of it. Mm-hmm. Sure. I could be wrong, <clears throat> but I feel like this was brought up as well during like when like credit cards we're like coming around. Oh yeah. And yeah. like this idea that like like you can't buy and or sell like without like even now in our credit cards they have they have chips or like you can just use your phone. Yeah, there's always been like these these things like coming up of like wondering where and what it is. What is this thing? And I think we're it's a good thing to be asking that question because like it says like the wise man like or this this calls for wisdom wisdom so we need to have wisdom about it um but then like the pointing and like the name like just like whatever the next big thing coming up like just pointing at that that's not that's that's not necessarily like wisdom but then we have to come to it like with that mm. a whole picture whole picture of what's going on and i'm not I'm not sure like what that what that means or what that looks like or like where or how would we be able to know what it is, when it is? Yeah. And, and I think, and this is just my perspective on this. It's not just going to be a, an economic coercion. Yeah. It's not just be like an, an economic move, but there's going to be that, that spiritual side to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's really significant um, because as I look at, at, the revelation, you know, we've already said, if you have the mark of the beast, it seems to be pretty clear that you're going to hell. And I think it's really important that we have a healthy understanding of how the mark of the beast comes about. Because I see Christians living in fear of this. And my my stance is, hey, you Christian, you do not need to be afraid of this thing. Because you have received the Holy Spirit as a seal of your salvation. He is bigger than this beast and this mark of the beast and whatever. And if the mark of the beast is indicative of people that go to hell and you receive the Holy Spirit as a seal of your salvation, 
you're not going to be tricked into it. Like it would have to be, this is again, my perspective on it. And it's going to have to be a willful rejection of Jesus as your source of salvation and a worship of this other thing. I think that mm-hmm. that spiritual element is so significant because if we just go around wondering like, oh, is it is it credit cards? Is it the vaccine? Is it this? Is it that? That starts to to make it seem like God is trying to trick you, right? You know, if you could accidentally mm-hmm. get the mark of the beast by getting a credit card or by getting a vaccine, what does that say about who God is mm-hmm. and how He wants you know to be in relationship with us? I I think that that uh, that other element, and I don't know what it's going to look like because Revelation is so symbolic, and it's hard to know what is going to happen. But I mean, if we look at Daniel, it was, uh, and what what happened with the the golden statue? Like it was very literal. It's like you will bow down to this or you will die. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think it might not be quite that literal, but I think you'll be able to see it. And it's not just going to be an economic possibility. It's going to be this is connected with something clearly evil and spiritual going on, which in my opinion should give us hope because we don't need to worry about accidentally getting it, you know, accidentally losing your salvation because God's not going to, not going to trip you up. You're not running the race and, Oh, I'm almost there. And then God sticks his leg out and you fall over before you cross the finish line. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's who right. he is. That's good, Scott. That is. Yeah. I would like, Going, going off of that to, like, we, as Christians, we know who Jesus is. Mm. That's, like, that's, like, one thing that we can, like, grasp onto of knowing Jesus. And, like, just quickly reading chapter 13, 11 through 18, the descriptions of the first beast, this beast who was slain and was, like, or was wounded and was still alive. And the second beast that is like a lamb with horns and has the voice of a dragon. Like mm. it's these two pictures that like are off sort of they're off white of what mm. Jesus is. Yeah, yeah. These these pictures of like some something, someone who had died and is still alive. Mm. But here we see it's like the first beast. It's something that it's trying to show and be like Jesus, but it's not. It's completely opposite of what Jesus is and what he's all about. And even the second beast is in the form of this lamb. But like, So if we as Christians know who Jesus is, who this perfect spotless lamb is, we know that it's not this lamb with a horn that's speaking as if it was a dragon. So us leaning in and learning more and growing in our faith and confidence in knowing who God is is going to be an asset to mm-hmm. to this when this comes about because we'll be able to see this thing that is wanting this mark or forcing this mark is a counterfeit. It's not the real not the real lamb that we have bowed down to, and it's not the real lamb who has sacrificed his life for us. It's this counterfeit trying to get us to lay down our lives to serve them in a way that is evil and going against everything that the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. Now might be saved. Right. Will be saved. Bill says that in funeral messages, funeral messages a lot. Yeah. I've been in a lot of funerals with Bill, <laughs> usually up in the loft. Um, while he, while he delivers the message, but yeah. And I, I think that that's just, I think that's what we need to remember as we consider this, that if you're calling on the name of Jesus, I don't think the mark of the beast is a means by which you're going to lose your salvation. I think if you're truly saved, the mark of the beast is not something that needs to concern you, at least in terms of what it might mean for your eternal destination. Like if you call the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And beyond that, you know, the revelation makes it clear that that the end times are going to be pretty chaotic and, and a lot of craziness is going to be going on. And we might die, but as long as we're calling on the name of Jesus, we're not going, we don't need to worry about the bark of the beast and, and losing our salvation. Right. The persecution in the book of Revelation is very intense. Mm-hmm. So the believer is called to make a choice mm-hmm. and really boldly step over the line, not try to be 
Mm. You're not going to be able to straddle the fence during the time of the Great Tribulation. You've, you've got to commit, jump in with both feet, one side or the other. Mm-hmm. There's just not going to be any fence straddling. So mm-hmm. a lot of Christians will lose their lives during the Tribulation. Mm-hmm. But death is simply a doorway into the presence of God. So that's not really that big of a, of a deal. I think the bigger deal is if you've got a young family and you've got a, like a little three-year-old kid and a five-year-old kid and they're going to kill the kid right before your eyes and then kill you, that, that is brutal. Mm-hmm. And they will do that. I don't see why they wouldn't. They've been brutal before. But, but apart from that, it's going to behoove people like me to be courageous and say, you know what, bring it on. I'm going to heaven. Shoot me right between the eyes. I don't care. As an inspiration, hopefully, to the younger family saying, you know what, we're just going to follow grandpa. That's, well, we'll just all be together in paradise here in a few moments. Mm -hmm. Along that lines, too, it's like we've seen the church go through persecution before, Mm -hmm. and it it grew. Persecution isn't something that's going to destroy, destroy. Christ's bride. It's something that like we can make it through regardless of what that looks like. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be tough regardless persecution, but I think it's not something, not something that we should like willingly want to like happen. Like, Oh yes, persecution. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it's not something that we should be in fear of either. Mm. Right. Even if it wiped out the church, the church didn't really get wiped out. The church simply changed locations from mm-hmm. earth to heaven. Yep. Yeah, in Revelation 13, before it gets to the mark of the beast, it says everyone who didn't worship the beast was killed. So theoretically, if that's taken literally, that means we're not around anymore mm-hmm. when the mark of the beast happens. We've all been killed because we didn't worship him. But then in Revelation 20, as a, a word of hope as we transition towards the end of our time together, Revelation 20, verse... Four says that's a long verse. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So pretty much, mm-hmm. if you're a Christian, a real Christian, during the time of when Revelations events start happening. You can pretty much count on the fact that you're going to die. But at the end of it all, you'll be raised with Jesus. It says it right there in Revelation 20. And it only gets better from there. The rest of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, is just is just better and better. So ultimately, we really don't have anything to worry about. No. I mean, there's a great promise from Jesus we've got to take seriously. Lo, I'm with you always, even to mm-hmm. the end of the age. Yeah. Uh, it's... I think we as Christians forget how much on offense we're supposed to be playing. Hmm. It's not yeah. a defensive posture for the Christian. And I think of that verse that's been totally misunderstood. Jesus says to Peter, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we hmm. always think of like Satan and his demons trying to get at us and they're reaching through the gates. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's exact opposite. They're behind the gates. We're going through the gates. We're, we're bending the bars and running in there and going after what Satan has stolen from us. Mm -hmm. And, and Jesus is going with us. It's not like we're going and Jesus is in heaven just saying, well, hope you do well today. No, no, he's right there with us. So that if we come up against something that we're just not able to overcome, he's the great overcomer. He's going to overcome it, and we just ride on his coattails. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, any, any closing thoughts? Glad I'm a Christian. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus is a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you... Oh, how does Max say it? 
I don't know. If you want to be a part of the show, that's what he says. If you want to be a part of the show, send your questions, your would you rathers, or your credit cards that once were thought to be the mark of the beast to podcast at bloomingdalechurch.org. Um, that is all that we have. I don't have a closing segment. Max sent me nothing this morning. He admitted, I have textual proof that he didn't send me anything. And um, <laughs> so I have no closing segment. Uh, so with that, Bill, will you, uh, will you take us home? You have been listening to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast, brought to you from Bloomingdale, Illinois, the heart of the nation. Man, thinking about oh, I didn't the end say times. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Ma- Bill. <laughs> thank, thank you, Max. You, thank, thank you. No, no thanks to Max. He did nothing this time. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I listened to the book of Revelation on, you know, audio while it was stretching today. And really, it was kind of frustrating. I got to the end and thought, boy, I really just don't get this. Mm-hmm. You know, this it's not like I haven't re- listened or read this before. This is probably the 50th, maybe even the 100th time, and it's still, yeah. it's a head-scratcher. Yeah. At least the, the last two chapters or so are pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, heaven. <laughs> yeah. But I noticed that verse you pointed out months ago, that he who reads this book aloud mm. will be blessed. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that? It's really early on, like right around yeah, verse was, five. Yeah, the first chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Qu- quick, like fun story. <clears throat> CCC in Omaha was going through um, Revelation. That was the series. And they kicked it off by like having a dramatic reading of the scriptures. Mm. And my brother was on the team. So I was pretty proud. Oh, yeah. My brother. But then there was a page that they forgot to print. And there's also something in Revelation that says, Anybody who oh. takes away <laughs> this, this curse. Yes. So they, they they found the mistake before they started reading it, and they were like, whew, <laughs> close one. So how much did they read? They read the whole book. Really? Yeah. As part of the worship service? Or? Yeah. yeah. It was like a separate, like, it was a night service where they did. We're like, hey, before we go into this, we're going to read through it. They'll have, like, some worship songs, and then they read through the whole book. Wow. They have like six or seven people reading. Yeah. It must have been like a few hours. Well, an hour and it, the audio was an hour and a half. My workout was an hour and a half today, and I got done with the audio mm-hmm. just as I was on my very last exercise. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was it's hefty. It was hefty. It was like really cool, though, as well. Like, I've never yeah. listened to that. And like the transitions they had were like down. So like when somebody was about to speak, it would like change the person talking. And it was like mm. done done really well. Nice. Yeah. James Earl Jones is the voice of God in my really? <laughs> The Bible experiences, it's all black people. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think Denzel Washington and yeah. James Earl Jones is the voice of God. And there's like 65 different yeah. i mean they're, these people are famous it's yeah. people like uh well now she's passed away but cicely tyson was in it and a- angela bassett and i mean it, just all these big name people came together and they did a phenomenal job i mean we're talking from genesis to revelation this whole what's it called the bible experience it was an expensive app i mean it was like when we were doing the Bible breakfast, we said, well, you can get this for like $29.99 as an oh, app. Oh, sure. Or, and this was the crazy thing, or we've got these CDs that we got on sale for $15. <laughs> and we were selling them for $10 because we were subsidized. Yeah. And so people were buying those things left. I, I bought just a handful thing, and nobody uses this anymore. I kept having to order more and more and more and more and more and more. It, Everybody wanted them because they could pop them in their car for one. Right. Yeah. 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 A little bit. Hello. Good measure. Hello. (laughs) Hello. All right. Okay. Everyone ready? I'm. I'm not.
Well, we'll just do the best we can to help you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a I don't have a sponsor, so that's that's really where we're gonna mm. where we're gonna put this lack of preparation of the test. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast. 